as the screen up here says, it's all about Jesus. We talk about everything Jesus and what a day, glorious day that'll be. And today also is a glorious day. And if there's any place in our heart that doesn't, that says it's not all about Jesus, then that's why we also go to the word of God. Because as we saw last week, I don't have a real sword this week, but last week I had the real sword and that the scripture is like a sword that comes and deals with our heart. And if there's anything in us that's not completely focused on Jesus, the word of God is going to do the work of bringing us to a place of submitting ourselves fully to Jesus. And so let us go to prayer as we come to the word together, that the Lord would bring our hearts not to play games this morning with God, not to be religious for God, not to be churchy together. Um, Let's pray that he deals with us. Let's pray that he takes us and honestly sticks us to a place of saying, yeah, it's, it's all about Jesus, everything Jesus. And I know I need that this morning, even as I come to preach. So let's pray to, together. Father, we're thankful that not only are you supreme in everything, but you have made that so clear to us in your word. And that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has authority in this place to speak to us the truth and to cause us to come to a place of believing that and living that out. And so this morning, Father, we place before you our hearts and our minds and our bodies that if there should be anything before you that is not of Jesus, that you would begin to root it out by your sword, your word. Lord, that you would examine our hearts and our thoughts, our attitudes. And that if there be any sin, Lord, that you would cut that out of us and place it on the cross of Jesus Christ. Bring us to a place, Lord, of repentance. But I pray for myself, Lord, that you would cause me to be obedient this morning, that what you would desire to have come out of my mouth would be spoken. If there's something that needs to be quiet, Lord, that I would not say it. And that all together we would have our eyes, ears, hearts, minds, everything focused on Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. This means we're halfway through the book of Revelation. The book starts out saying this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. and goes forward dealing with who Jesus is through all of eternity, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And he begins writing this letter to seven churches that were in that particular day. But now we've as we've gone forward in the book, he's speaking future. He's speaking prophetic. And as we come to prophetic literature in the Bible, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'm left scratching my head. Um, and I got to admit to you today, this is your your pastor being very, very honest and open with you this morning that when it comes to Revelation chapter 11. I've spent a large part of my life reading this chapter, scratching my head, and I spent a large part of this week as I read this chapter scratching my head so there's going to be very uh often moments today probably that i'll just say i don't know i'm waiting for it to be revealed because as we come to prophetic words as in all of scripture we need the lord to give us understanding and there's something about what the lord does in prophetic writings where he's laying it out there it's actually clear it's still the truth but he's going to reveal it to us at the right time it's kind of like this uh, in our family, as our kids are growing up, there's times when mom and dad just need to communicate to each other, right? And so maybe we're talking about what we're going to have for dinner. And I'll say to Katie, uh, Katie, what do you think we as a family should be having for dinner? And she'll say, I don't know. What do you think? And the first thing that always comes to my mind, I say, how about some P-I-Z-Z-A? 
Okay. Now, did you see what I did right there? There's kids in the room. Okay. We can't have them understanding that we're talking about these because what if it's not going to be P-I-Z-Z-A? Okay. We don't want them to get their hopes up. Oh, I got somebody in the front row. The Johnsons, you're going to have to go to pizza sometime today because I just got that uh, pump primed. Um, you know, I'm talking about pizza. And as, as the kids got older, as Elijah began to be able to read and spell, I'd say P-I-Z-Z-A, and suddenly Elijah would be clued in because as he grew up and matured, he began to understand what the communication was. He began to understand the conversation between mom and dad. And the same is true with prophetic literature. These prophecies that go out, God gave them to prophets. They spoke them. And sometimes like, I don't understand. It's like mom and dad spelling out what's for dinner. But as we grow up in our faith and as we continue to spend more time in the word and put ourselves before him and say, please give me understanding, we begin to learn what it's spelling out. And so today, while we might say, I don't understand, we're still given all these things that we might hold them and say, but I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to be watching for these things. And one day at some point, I may come to a point and say, huh, now I know what's for dinner. <laughs> I know what chapter 11 means. So there's going to be portions today where we might be like, I don't know. We just got to wait and see. And there may be other things like, okay, this seems like we have a grasp. Let's watch what the Lord's going to do prophetically through this chapter. So that's my preface today as we get going. And uh, if you would, with me, join in at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles available on the side table and in the, in the table at the back. We want to make sure that everybody owns a Bible if you don't have one already. But if you do have your Bible, please be there with me in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. It says, then I, that's John speaking, then I was giving a, given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure out the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So at any point... Already, is anybody scratching your head and saying, oh, the mom and dad are spelling over my head. Now, remember where we are at this point. There's been uh, six trumpets in the course of seven. So we're in between six and seven. There's a pause here while John is seeing what he's seeing. And he says here that in this moment that there was this measuring rod that was given to, to measure out the temple. And, and this has happened before. It happened with uh, Ezekiel. Okay, and it'll actually happen later on. They'll measure the temple again and later on in Revelation. And anytime that happens, when they measure out the temple, it almost comes to a point of measuring and just seeing how massive it is, how, how awesome it is. And so I, I have, in reading those, I kind of bring that here and wonder if, if the moment was there to just see how spectacular the house of God is, that he has prepared a place, a sanctuary, that the people of God might come together and worship and actually be in the fellowship and the presence of Almighty God. And in that sanctuary, it is a place that is absolutely holy. So if you go and you study what was the tabernacle, the tent, which later on became a, a hard, fast foundation temple they're the same thing but they they had the same picture of what the reality was in heaven and that was this at the very center of the temple was a place called the most holy place it was absolutely holy the glory of god would come down there the ark of the covenant was there that was the place where the high priest would go in on the day of atonement and offer sacrifice there okay the most holy place radiating out from there then you would have 
the holy place. And then out from there, you would have another area that uh, the people of God could come. And then out from that, you would have uh, another area. And as you radiated out, it would go from the most holy place out to, out to the outside where people who weren't a part of the people of God could not come. If you were not part of the Jews, if you were if you had not been come, had come into the Judaic uh, religion, you could not be in that place at all. And so it was the outside. So in the center, you had the most holy on the outside. You couldn't even enter because you're not holy or you were calm, uh, uh, you, you were dirty. The fact is that all of us at one time were on the outside. The scripture says because we are all born in sin, we are not holy enough to get into the middle or even enter into the temple or tabernacle at all. And so those were given as a picture in the scripture describing what it is to be in the very presence of Jesus, that in order to get into that most holy place to even have a relationship with him, there has to be a way for you to go from being unholy into being a holy. And the thing that makes you holy is the blood of Jesus Christ. He was the one who was sacrificed for his blood to cover you, to take you from being an outsider and making you an insider. So here it's being measured that this is an absolute glorious and awesome sanctuary where the most holy God resides and meet with his, meets with his people. But the uncommon people, the people who are not washed in the blood of Jesus, they're outside and he tells John, don't even, don't even go measure there. I'm just describing the holy place of God. So that's what it talks about. It talks about these two witnesses as well, that at, for a time of the 42 months and also prophesying for 1260 days, if you do your quick math, according to uh, the calendar year that they would have used, 360 days, that's three and a half years. Okay, This is a repetitious period of time that is given throughout Scripture. We have it in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and also, uh, if I remember right, chapter 9. Uh, and also in chapter 12, uh, three and a half months, excuse me, three and a half years. And so it's talked about in different ways. Sometimes they'll use the language times, time, and half a time. You know, you put that together, it's three and a half. Uh, uh, sometimes it's 42 months. Sometimes it's 1,260 days. And so they're using similar things to describe a three and a half year period. And so what all is happening here, I don't know. But whenever you look at what that period of time means, it usually has to do with this, that during that period of three and a half years, there is a time of tribulation happening. There is a, a, resistance, a resistance against God and God's coming with judgment and causing a tribulation that's happening. And so that usually occurs within that three and a half uh, year period of time, three and a half. Now, we use numbers a lot of times to signify certain things, even though there's nothing necessarily related to what's going on that year. For instance, uh, recently, uh, Scott Sherman uh, had his 40th birthday. Okay, and people looked at me and they're like, you're 39, you're going to be 42. Well, what do we associate with the 40th birthday? You're what? Over the hill. Okay, does that mean anything actually happened to Scott when he turned 40? Did his legs suddenly fall off? Did his hair go from jet black to gray immediately? No, we've just marked that number as something happens according to that number. Similarly, I believe that with this three and a half years, it marks it out no matter how you describe it as here's three and a half of a period of time where there's tribulation. And here certainly we see that for those 42 months um, that the holy city was being trampled down by the nations and that for three and a half years, excuse me, for three and a half years uh, that the witnesses were in sackcloth. They're mourning over the sin that they see and they're giving witness of who God is. Okay, everybody with me? 
Y'all know what chapter 11 is about now? I'm, I'm scratching my head, but let's keep going. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So let's press pause again. One of the great things about Scripture is that Scripture is its own commentary. A lot of times we have questions where you can probably find answers in another part of the Bible. So if we rewind and go to the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, Zechariah is given a vision of this very thing where there's a lampstand there and there's these two olive uh, trees that are feeding into the lamp their oil and that the oil there is being described as the spirit of God. And so there are two witnesses that are filled with the spirit of God and lending into this lamp that's being lit and illustrating God. We've already known from Revelation that a lampstand is signifying the church. And so here what you're having is two witnesses like the church that are filled with the spirit of God and giving witness, giving light of who God is. And so it says here that there's two witnesses. It says that they are the lampstands. They are the olive trees that were spoken about in Zechariah. And we'll get into a little bit more about who these witnesses are, but it talks about what happens with them. It says in verse five, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be uh, killed. Um, and I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if that's literal. I don't know if it's figurative. There's them bringing the gospel and the gospel is offensive to people. It burns them and scorches them. So it could be that. I don't know. It's another one of those verses I'm going to just say, I don't know. I'm just going to hold it there and I'm going to watch and see what happens. Verse six goes on and says, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So that sounds pretty crazy. Uh, you know, that they could, they could say, hey, stop raining. And the sky stops raining, that they could turn waters to blood. You know, here, here they do these things. It's like, that's amazing. But we've already seen that occur in Scripture. Remember that at the word of Elijah, it stopped raining. And at his word, it began raining as he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him those things. We see also that as Moses went and there was the ten plagues at Egypt, that as he went and, and put his staff on the water, that it turned to blood. Okay, so this has already occurred within the prophets of God. It, it, it could happen again, that God would allow these things to happen, that through the prayers, that this would occur in order to be a sign to people that God is present in the midst of these witnesses. What all exactly will happen? I don't know. Is it figurative? I don't know. We're to watch and see. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So it says symbolically the city is Sodom or Egypt, but it's where Jesus was crucified. That clues us into the fact that it's Jerusalem. At times, Jerusalem is portrayed as being, hey, you're so sinful, you're like Sodom. You're so sinful, you're like Egypt. So here these witnesses are being taken down and destroyed. But it says by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. Later on in Revelation, we find out that Satan himself bound up and thrown into this bottomless pit. And along with him, there's the restraint upon his system, which is described as the beast. And so here Satan is allowed to come at these two witnesses and go after them and to conquer them and kill them. 
and that right there it comes to a head in Jerusalem. Okay, so that much we have seen here. It goes on in verse 9. It says, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so these two witnesses of God are slain in Jerusalem. And there it says that all these people, nations, tribes, languages, they actually can look at these people. That's that can happen now. Back in John's day, I'm sure there was like, well, how would everybody see that? Now you just get on the Internet. Now you just turn on the news or read the news. I mean, we have so much access to be able to see what happens in the streets of Jerusalem, that the nations will watch this and have access to watch it. And it says that when they see these two witnesses killed, they were such a torment to the world because of the truth of God. That when these two are killed, it says that the nations will begin to rejoice and make merry. It says that it'll actually look like Christmas. You know why? They exchange gifts. They're so happy about the witnesses being killed. They begin to give presents to one another. It goes on. It's a it's an evil thing that's happening. Verse 11 it goes on, and says, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, it doesn't say they were saved, but it's like that verse says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can give glory. You can say, hey. Actually, what the witnesses were saying was true. Okay, so what happens is they've been dead, but the Lord raises them back to life for the uh, after those three and a half days. They come to and in that moment, he scoops them up and takes them back to heaven in a cloud, takes them back to be with him. And everybody's like, whoa, there's an earthquake. Seven thousand die. End of story. Okay, there you go. So we read that, and like I said, there's a lot of head scratch and a lot of I don't knows. I've already given you a, a whole mass of I don't knows. But it brings us to a question that maybe you've already had. Who are these two witnesses? Has anybody been, been wondering that as we've gone? In the midst of the Lord trying to spell things out, it's like these kids saying, what's the P and what's the I and the Z, Z, A? What does it all spell? Well, who are these two witnesses? That's one of the great questions that people ask when they come to Revelation chapter 11. Now, there's been lots of guesses over the years. The Jews actually have uh, um, traditions that they believe that at one time Moses or Elijah will come back. For instance, when they have Passover, they leave an open seat because they believe Elijah might come and sit at that Passover seat. So some people have thought, well, according to these Jewish traditions, maybe the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. We've already seen on the Mount of Transfiguration that Moses and Elijah come and meet with the Lord. Remember that story? So some people think it may be Moses and Elijah. Other people think that it may be Elijah and a guy whose name was Enoch. If you go back to the book of Genesis, it says that Enoch walked with the Lord and then suddenly the Lord took him. He didn't die. The Lord just took him. So both Enoch and Elijah, who was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, were two men who never died. That maybe the Lord might send them back as these witnesses and they will one day then die their death again. 
or die their death the first time and then join the rest of us uh, with the Lord. So those are some ideas about witnesses. My take on it is, I don't know. <laughs> okay, I don't know. It, it may be two of you in this room. Or it may not be two individuals at all. Well, why would I say that? I actually have the opinion about this passage. That there may be two people who would represent this, what's going on. But my, my belief about this two passages is that the two witnesses that are being described in the book of Revelation aren't just two individuals. But when you look at the details that are given there, begin to spell together according to what Scripture has said. It talks about the lampstands. Nowhere else in Scripture does it talk about lampstands when it's talking about individuals. Whenever lampstands are used, it's talking about the church, the church. And so here you have two lampstands. What I would come to understand, and I'm not going to write this down in stone. I hope I hold it open handed and the Lord will show us. But what I believe is that it's a combination of people that come together as the people of God. What I think they are, are both the Jews and the Gentiles that in the cross of Christ, as it says in the book of Ephesians, were once two, but have now been made one man together, that we are one body of Christ. And so you have the Jews and the Gentiles that would then come together as a witness, as the lampstands that are filled with the Holy Spirit, those olive trees flowing with oil, the spirit of God, and that together we are the witnesses of God that are currently going out. Now, it talks about this three and a half year period. We don't know exactly when that's going to be. And sometimes it talks about years. But in Scripture, uh, years mean uh, days and periods and weeks and all those things. When you look prophetically, sometimes they're, they're just representative. And so it could be the fact that for this time after Jesus' ascension, that we're in a period of prophetic three and a half years. And that during this coming time of tribulation, that that might be the three and a half days described that when they're beaten down, then they're getting kicked down. That the church of God, that is this witness of Christ, the spirit flowing through them and then giving the message of Jesus, that the world hates them. They can't stand the message. It's like fire their hearts. They can't take it. And so they wish to destroy them. Now, it may not look like that right now in Johnston County, but you go ask Christians in Egypt, you go ask them in Syria, you go ask them in Sudan or in China or over in, uh, in the Southeast Asia, places where Christians by the day are being sacrificed for the name of Jesus Christ according to their witness of him. And they will say, boy, it sure does feel like witnesses dying. Sure does feel like people who are a part of the city of God who are dying on his behalf. Oh, but that great day. That the witness, the church, that the people of God on that day when Jesus returns, when that final trumpet does sound, that one we're waiting for, the seventh, would sound that on that day that they would be taken as the two witnesses, Jews and Gentiles alike, that they would return back to God and the world would see it and say, uh-oh, we were wrong. We were wrong. Now, there may be two individuals that would represent the whole church. They might go over to Jerusalem. They may be doing what this scripture said. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't point at God and say, hey, I, I think you got that wrong. <laughs> you know. 
again, I hold this all with an open hand and just say, Lord, show me. But what I know is this. The scripture has called you as the church of Christ to be a witness for Christ. That you would go to Benson and you would go to Four Oaks and you would go to your job and to your school and to your families and to your friends and to strangers and to people who are hurting to suddenly arrive in your office and they're breaking down crying. And you come and you say, here's Jesus Christ. He died for you to take you as one who is an outsider, an unholy, and to wash you clean and to bring you over into his presence. To make you part of his lampstand. To fill you with his oil, the Holy Spirit, that you might shine as a witness for him and his holiness. You get to go be a witness for Jesus Christ. During this period of time that is coming, it is happening in the world today that tribulation is occurring that there is pressure mounting against the church we see it in politics and we see it in legislation and we see it in society we see it on the news and we see it even in the fact that there are famines and pestilence and all kinds of craziness happening around the world jesus said there would be labor pains is this part of the three and a half years or three and a half days i'm not quite sure boy i don't want to wait for that day to start witnessing I don't want to wait until it's too late so that I don't give the message to somebody that I love and they go to hell. Oh, the witness of Christ by his church needs to happen now, even if it costs us our head. It needs to be to both friend and foe alike. There are currently in the world brothers and sisters in Christ who this morning for the church are gathering in secret. They have shades drawn. They have lights off. They have scripture hidden away in their clothes and they bring it out and they love Jesus. And they know that when they leave that room after celebrating what Jesus has done to make them holy, that they will go out and live their life and they might pay with their life to live for Jesus. And they will do so with joy because he means everything to them does he mean everything to you or do you leave this room of freedom with windows open and scripture out and then you go out and hide your faith are you willing to get your teeth kicked in for him are you willing to have somebody say you're crazy are you willing to lose your job Are you willing for your parents to say, that's just kid stuff? Are you willing as a witness of Christ to put your life on the line, not just your death, but your life as a witness for him? Because there's brothers and sisters around the world that are doing it this very day. There are men and women and kids. There, there are kids Christian kids around the world that today might lose their head. There have been children being beheaded in our day around the world. And what's more, we're already seeing people like ISIS parading people's heads around, making merry, showing it on TV, celebrating as if it's Christmas because they're destroying the witness of Christ. We're already seeing it. 
And those church members of ours, those fellow people in the lampstand that are filled with the oil of the Spirit of Christ are doing it. You know what? I'm a bit jealous. Now, I don't want to, I don't feel like dying. I don't feel like feeling pain. I don't feel like losing friends. But you know what? It's not about my feelings. It's about the commitment I made the day when Jesus Christ said, you're a sinner. I've paid for your sins. Let me wash you clean and you come be a part of my body. And Jason Hudson said, yes, I'll take that and I'll take all of you, Jesus. Have my life. And so it's not about my feelings anymore. It's not about me saying, well, I don't understand Revelation 11, so I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to be a witness. No, there's plenty of understandable parts of Scripture that says, you, if you are part of the body of Christ, you don't just have to be a witness, you get to be a witness. It's part of your faith. And the Scripture actually says, if you are living a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's a promise that Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. There's a man who once said, it's not that people have looked at Christianity and said, it's too easy. That it looks like it's hard and it's been left untried. It's a hard life. What'd you get into this for? Is this a cakewalk? You got into it for Jesus. Now you get to do everything that he says. And you know what happens when you do that? Because you obey Jesus, you might go tell somebody this week about his saving grace, his love for them, his bloodshed. And because of what you do in your commitment for Jesus, they might come to faith. That temple that he measured off, they will be on the inside. I don't like thinking about myself being on the inside, looking out the window, waving at those on the outside that I should have told. Go live a godly life. Be willing to be persecuted. Be willing to do what you committed to when you said, Lord, I want to be saved. Go tell people about Jesus. I guarantee you this. Some of the hardest people you will ever tell about Jesus are the people that you care about the most. The ones in your family. Your neighbors. We come up with mission trips and we go tell other people in other countries about Jesus. Without ever telling the people that are right around us about him. You know what? It's cheaper just to do it here. And how effective to tell somebody that you love. You love them so much. You're going to let Jesus deal with their sin. And bring them to faith. So we get to the end of chapter 11. It says this. Verse 14. uh, Excuse me. The middle. Verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold the third woe. Is soon to come. We were told. The previous chapter. There was three woes. Two have passed. There's one to come. When the third one comes. It's all over. 
It's too late. Jesus comes and he scoops up everybody in that cloud and takes them back to be with him. For his enemies, he will destroy them. After the third woe, it's too late. If you don't know Jesus, and when that third woe hits, if you have not confessed your sin and had him save you, then on that third woe, it means that you're destroyed. It means that you will be judged as being his enemy and you will be cast into darkness for eternity. Before that happens, if you don't know Jesus, seek him out. Find him. Pray to him. Call upon his name. Ask him to save you. The Lord says he's going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen. You can make your plans, vacation, retirement. You don't know when he's coming. Don't think you've got time. Before that will happen, say, Lord, save me. and He will save you. Father, we come to you today, and you've, in very prophetic ways that are difficult to understand, you've clearly told us that there will be trials and tribulations. You have not promised that we will escape those, but in fact, you say most often that the church will go through those. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give your church endurance and that you would give us steadfastness and that you would give us an eagerness to share the gospel as your witnesses. We pray that no matter if somebody accepts the Lord or if somebody rejects the Lord and does us harm, no matter what, Lord, we would just go out and be faithful witnesses. So, Lord, please keep growing us in your word, helping us to know you better and better so we can also tell others about you. Lord, I pray for anybody who does not know you, who has not called upon you to be saved. Maybe they've gone to church all their life. Maybe they've heard all the songs. They even had memorized the hymns we sang. But Lord, they've never had a true encounter with you. I pray right now, Lord, that you would be saving them. That in this hour, they would not wait, but in fact, pray before you to save them. Lord, I pray for those of us who are of faith, Lord but where our hearts are not completely given over to you, where we can't say, yeah, it's everything, Jesus, everything. We confess our sin in that, Lord, and we pray that you would forgive us. And then our repentance, Lord, that you would cause us to go and be dedicated Christians, dedicated to you and what you are in our life and dedicated to the message of Jesus going out through our lips and going out through our actions, being present in our thoughts and in our hearts that we would live for you. We thank you, Lord, for your continued spread of the gospel. We know that when everybody's, <laughs> when all the people that you've numbered are saved, that you will come back. And so we look forward to that day. We pray this in Jesus' name.